Psalm 88. A song, a song of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to Mal Malhalfeth, Leonoth, a mascal of Canaan, the Ezraite. O Yahweh, the God of my salvation, I've cried out by day and throughout the night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ears to my cry of lamentation. For my soul has been saturated with calamities, and my life has reached Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like a man without strength, released among the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave, who you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the pit far below in dark places in the depths. Your wrath lies upon me and you afflict me with all your breaking waves, Selah. You have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have set me as an abomination to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. My eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Yahweh. I have spread out my hands to you. Will you do wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you, Selah? Will your loving kindness be recounted in the grave, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be known in darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But as for me, O Yahweh, I have cried out, to you for help in the morning my prayer comes before you O Yahweh why do you reject my soul why do you hide your face from me I have been afflicted and about to breathe my last from my youth on I bear your terrors I am overcome your burning anger has passed over me your horrors have destroyed me they have surrounded me like water all day long. They have encompassed me all together. They have removed lovers and friends far from me. My acquaintances are in darkness. Dear Lord, we know that we are in the midst of a fallen world. And oftentimes that pain that comes with it uh, seems like it is eternal. So Lord, as we look at this text, may you remind us that we can indeed cling to you, that we can find our salvation in you and in you alone. Be with us this evening. May your word transform us to be more dependent on you and your goodness. In your son's precious name, amen. When I was in college, I took an elective class on music theory. And uh, one of the things that you learn in music theory class is that uh, you, they pretty much deconstruct and explain to you how uh, music works, and classical music, and even the way that uh, human beings react and respond to music uh, when they hear it. And this usually, this is more in a classical sense, but even some of those classical principles are applied in modern day. And in one particular instance, one of the things I've learned is that if you play a certain uh, song and is in a certain key, then it has to resolve itself. 
And what that means is that the last note of the song uh, should have um, that note in it. So if it's in the C, in the key of C, it sh the last note should have that, that note in it. It may not start with that note, but it definitely should, needs to end with it because without it, there's something in us that makes us feel very uncomfortable. It's like, um, kind of like it, it bothers us because it's like incomplete. Um, we, we feel it in us. And usually this, is, this idea is used to help us, you know, just something about us, something about the way that the vibrations and this lingering thing that goes on. And if it doesn't resolve, it makes us feel very uncomfortable. And you know, if you try on a keyboard, and then my professor did this, he played some songs, and then at the very last note, you can just feel like it just needs to go, just hit that one note, and then he decides not to do it. And all of us kind of like wish that like, okay, just hit that note, or else we're gonna feel very uncomfortable. And he does, he hits that note, so we're like, okay, cool, song's over. <clears throat> I think of that when I think of this. This is a psalm of lament. It's a psalm that doesn't really answer uh, the psalmist. It's a very unique psalm in that it is a psalm that speaks of affliction. Um, when I was reading through the Bible every single year, every time I get to this particular psalm, I was fascinated by it because it's a psalm that's it's a very lonely psalm. And by lonely, I don't mean that not just in terms of its content, because it does definitely feels that way throughout the reading of Scripture. You can see that this individual feels alone. The psalmist is by himself. But it's also a lonely psalm in the sense that this is the only psalm in the entire Psalter that ends like this, ends with this, it doesn't really, it feels like it, something is missing. All the other psalms, there's some hope that comes with it. There's some recognition of God's sovereignty and goodness. But in this, it just seems like it's just missing here. And I think that's intentional. The psalmist writes this way so that we could depend on the Lord no matter whatever circumstance we are in. Look at the beginning, it says a song, a song, a song of the sons of Korah for the choir director, according to the Mahalath Leonoth, a masculine of Haman, the Ezraites. Um, this is a psalm that's written by this individual, Haman. And uh, in 1 Kings 5.11, it speaks of this guy being a famous, a wise sage under Solomon's court. And in 1 Chronicles 15, this, there's a guy named Haman as well that's, that is a part of the priests and prophet as well in Solomon's time. So this person here is just mainly a choir director. It can be these two individuals because they, 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 you know, they're around Solomon, so they have some wisdom. But this individual here, is, 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 it could be him, it may not be, it doesn't know, there's no definitive answer on who this author is. But we do know that this person is a very gifted hymn writer or psalmist. He's talking about suffering. Suffering is very difficult. Steve Lawson describes suffering as the required course in the school of faith. That if you want to grow in your faith, suffering is going to be part of it. That you have to suffer in this life. And just because we live in a fallen world. Not one of us are going to enter into this world and leave this life unscathed. All of us are going to feel some level of turmoil and trial in our life. And this is how the psalmist begins. He begins by saying, O Yahweh, O, o Lord. And this psalmist, if, you, if you're just hearing me read through this passage, you realize that he's crying out to this one God. He gets the right God. He's, he's in this con, uh, continual turmoil, but he gets God right. Even though everything in his life is completely wrong and backwards, he gets this one area right in that he 
goes to Yahweh. He goes to the one true God. He describes them and describes them by the covenant name of the Lord. He says that the God of my salvation, God is the only one that can save him. He recognizes that. He knows that no matter what happens in his life, no matter how much ongoing this trial is, the only person that he can run to is God. He knows that Yahweh is the only ray of light in this very dark time. He says that he's cried out by day and by night, and the psalmist is crying for from some sort of aid from the Lord, yet he doesn't get that answer right away. He's crying out by day and by night, and he's praying and pleading all the time. The affliction made him depend on the Lord more. He cries to the Lord all the time. And it seems in the context of this chapter that he's going through some sort of sickness, some sickness that requires him to, to be praying all night long. And I think some of you guys understand this. Some of you guys understand what it's like when you're, you know, you have a fever or you have a cold or maybe some of you even caught COVID and you feel the negative effects of it. You know, it's hard to go to sleep. You're very uncomfortable. You're, you're breaking out into sweat and all of a sudden you get chills and you can't sleep. Or even there's moments where you're almost dozing off and something uncomfortable inside happens and it, it wakes you up. He spends his whole night praying because that's what the sickness done to him. The sickness has got him, made him, and forced him to only cry out to the Lord because nothing is helping. There's no medicine that can help. There's no balm for him. He's in such tremendous pain. He's just crying out to the Lord day and night. Now I wonder if that's how you respond during times of trial. During times when there is a tremendous amount of pain, do you run to the Lord first? Do you go to him in prayer? Do you seek him in scripture? Or do you go and, you know, go binge watch something on Netflix? Or do you find things that you like to do to just kind of drown out your pain? The psalmist here is crying out to the Lord day and night. Look at the verse 2. Let my prayer come before you. He, there's this admission of dependency on who God is. He knows who he is and he's dependent on him. He said, incline your ears to, to my cry. He's begging God. He's asking God to give him some attention, to give him some, uh, to just look at him and see, Lord, help me. He he wants some response from the Lord. He feels like God is not listening. He, at times we feel like he's just praying to the Lord out loud and he's just speaking into the ether. He's crying out to the Lord. Yet in light of all this, he, he trusts and knows that God is the only one that he can go to. He's not indifferent to prayer. He knows the importance of prayer. He knows that this is the only means by which he can go to the Lord and, and vent out his struggles to him, to pour out his heart. And it's because he has a high view of prayer. How you yourself view prayer is actually a reflection in how you view the Lord. If you view the Lord highly, you will view prayer highly. If you think, uh, if you think, if you, if you have a high view of the Lord, <clears throat> you'll take prayer seriously. Because you understand that prayer is your <clears throat> only access to the Lord in this life. The only way you can commune with it is not through a priest, it's not through some guy in the booth, I know I'm in the booth right now, but it's not like, you know, a booth, like a Roman Catholic style, there's nothing that you need to do in this life, or you don't need someone to intercede for you. The only one that you need to go to is God himself. And the psalmist gets that. He knows that he can only, the only one that can hear him, the only one that will listen is the Lord, but he struggles because he, he's not getting a response back from God. 
Verse 3 says, My soul has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol. This phrase, had had enough trouble, he's basically saying he is completely filled. It's like imagine a cup that's just overflowing with trials, and he's satiated with turmoil. He says that his entire life is drawn near to Sheol. He thinks that the result of this ongoing problem is bringing him close to death. He feels like he's about to die soon. In fact, he even says that he's drawn near to Sheol. There's a sense in which he's identifying more with those that are dying and with death than, than he is with life. He understands death more because he feels like he's dying. He feels as if each moment that's passing by, he's, going, he's being drawn closer and closer to death. Verse 4, I am reckoned among those who go down to the pit. I have become like a man without strength. So he, he feels like he just, again, he relates to those people that are dying. He sees those that are dying. He's like, oh, I get you. I understand what you're saying. I know what you're going through. He feels like he's those that, he feels like he's one of those that has just gone down to the pit. He's on the verge of passing away. And he's, in a lot of ways, he's as good as dead. He's become a man without any strength. All the strength that he has, all of the things that he once had before is completely gone. He is empty. He feels like he's losing his grip on life and he's about to reach his end. Verse 5, forsaken among the dead like the slain who lie in the grave whom you remember no more. And they are cut off from your hand. This word forsaken is this idea of being set loose or set free. He feels like he's set free among the dead. He's just like, it's usually described as a body being thrown into like a mass grave. He feels like that. He's like, I'm just one of those uh, corpses here. He's like he's slain. He's like, like a slain who lie in the grave. This is a, implies that his death was not natural, that he was slain somehow. It doesn't explain what this disease is or whatever this problem is, but it just feels like he's getting to a point where he's close to the grave. It's this unnatural thing that happened is in his, most of his life, and he feels like he just wants to die. Now, you notice this phrase here, whom you remember no more. Now, we understand that God is omniscient. We understand he knows all things, that there's, that he, he, there's nothing in all of existence and in the creative order that, 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 he's, that he doesn't see. So what does it mean that when, whom you remember no more? Well, this is what we call anthropopathic uh, uh, Anthropomorphism, meaning, you know, anthropomorphic, you know what that term is? It's like kind of like when God has a hand or his eyes. We actually see that later on. He says, uh, they are cut off from your hand. That's anthropomorphic language. They're trying to describe something that, that people understand, like hands, eyes, and heads. All of these things are, are a way to describe God for us to understand. These are those physical, emotional, uh, physical things that you can see so you can understand tangibly what the, God, what the Lord is doing. Anthropopathic is this idea of the emotional side, like what God is doing uh, that isn't like physical, but more like just like reaction to things. It's kind of like when, when God says that he regret making Saul king. That's anthropopathic language. Like God doesn't regret because he knows all things. It's just that the way that he responds seems as though that he is regretting. And that's what the psalm is saying here. The way that the Lord is responding to him seems like the, the Lord has, has forgotten him and he doesn't remember him. He feels cut off from the hand of God. And this word cut off here is just this, this is used, this word is described to use those that are sick, those that are like, you know, like leprosy, they have some disease and they're cut off from the land. 
this is why I, that's why I hold the view that the person here, the Psalms, is struggling with some sort of health issue that's keeping him from the company of, of the people, and he feels outcasted from the land of Israel. Verse 6, you have put me in the lowest pit, in the dark places, in the depths. And notice, it's very quickly here in verse 6, he says, you have put me. And in verse 7, your wrath has rested on me. And in verse eight, uh, 7 again, and you have afflicted me with all your waves. Verse 8, you have removed my acquaintance far from me. You have made me an object of loathing. The psalmist here understands that God is the one that placed him there. He is the one... He knows that God is sovereignly and even providentially has ordained circumstances in his life for him to, to feel this punishment and pain. He doesn't exactly understand what's going on, but he knows that God is the one who placed him there. And that's really assuring for us because we know that if God is the only one that can place us in the trial, that also means that God is the only one that can remove us from the trial. He acknowledges that it's God and his sovereignty that's placing him there. He understands that God is the one who places Psalms in this lowest pit, and he, and he feels like he's suffering and there's no return. He's in this lowest pit. It's his metaphor for death. It's the same thing as in the dark places, in the depths. He feels like his, he's in this very, very depressing place. He feels like his body, he feels like his, the mind for him has descended lower than in the body can physically go to. Because he's still here physically, right? He's just his mind. He's just by himself, like, thinking through all of this and experiencing all those things. And yes, he might be going through physical pain, but what's worse is the psychological torture that he feels as he's living through this life with this affliction here. Verse 7, your wrath has rested upon me. You have afflicted me with all your waves. His trouble-filled life is a circumstance that's overwhelming him. He, has this, he feels crushed beyond comprehension. It says here that he feels, this, he feels like the Lord's wave is crashing upon him, this overwhelming suffering and loneliness. And it ends with this little phrase here, Selah. It's like almost like a pause here. Even in times of great suffering, there's these slivers and moments of pause and break. So he writes in that way. He says there's this pause. That's what usually what Selah means. It's like, like a temporary pause. And this is going. Now he continues on. Verse that you have removed my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an object of loathing to them. I am shut up and cannot go out. Again, he understands that God has placed him in the circumstances, and those in his life, those acquaintances, those that claim to be great friends, and those that claim to be loyal to him, they're all gone now. His circumstances have left him completely alone, and God's affliction made him lose friends, and they are all far from him. He felt completely isolated that they're, that they're all gone because of whatever the situation is. You know, we, we kind of understand this. We see it in the world around us. You know, this whole cancel culture thing. They, people dig up things for, you know, something that they said years ago, and then they're like, oh, hey, let's put this all over the internet, and then people just cancel them. And usually what happens is, like, you know, businesses will leave them behind, and then their friends will not want to talk to them. And this is what cancel culture is. So we see that, and that's what's going on here. That's what he's experiencing. Except, except he didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't think that he's, he's done anything wrong. He just feels alone, abandoned by everyone. He's a, he, he, he says he's, he's shut up and cannot go out. He's somehow at this place where he feels trapped. He's no longer able to escape. You, know, you have to wonder, why is that? What, what happened? His acquaintances. 
which could be that whatever affliction, health reason, they see him, they realize like, okay, I don't want to, if this is somehow God's judgment on him, then I, I want to be far away from him. Or maybe he has some disease they see and they're okay, I don't want to be contaminated or infected. So I'm going to keep my distance from him. And in doing so, this psalmist feels absolutely alone. Verse 9, my eye has wasted away because of affliction. I have called upon you every day, O Lord. I have spread out my hands to you. He says, my eye, he's just speaking of this. His health is fading. His vitality is lost. And I can just imagine him just crying all night, just feeling the pain and tears running down his eyes. And, you know, if you ever cried a lot, sometimes your eyes will get swollen, your eyes will get red, or there's just bags under your eyes. That's what the psalm is going, is experiencing. He's just going through a, this tremendous amount of tears, and, and it's, it's just, he feels wasted away. His eyes feel completely wasted because of this affliction. He has called upon the Lord. His only hope is that God will listen to his prayers and hope that he will remove this affliction. He calls him, he called upon the Lord day and night. He called him, he's called upon him, and yet he doesn't hear anything. The Psalms called out to the Lord, but there is no answer. And I remember there was a time, and nowadays we have, you know, Facebook, and I remember there was a time on Facebook, there was a, well, actually, well, now in, in Facebook, if you, st if you still use it, I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm like old for using it, but uh, there's this feature there that if there's some sort of natural catastrophe, um, you can actually log in and say, I'm safe. And so that people all over the world, if they're wondering about you, they'll know, okay, you're safe. But I remember a time before that feature or that function came on, uh, I had a friend that ran in the Boston Marathon, and that was the, the exact same year when the, when the terrorists blew up the end of, end of the race. You guys remember that? There was like a whole explosion and then, um, you know, a whole bunch of people were um, killed and hurt. And uh, this person was, was at this race. And um, I remember people online were like trying to figure out, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? And again, this is before that function came and people were just, you know, you could see the person's wall, like, hey, are you okay? Are you okay? And then after what's felt like, I'm sure like loved ones were like horrified, what felt like to the, probably to them, what felt like an eternity, eventually they get, there was a message from the husband saying, oh yeah, we're fine. Uh, we, we, we were able to leave before all that happened, but you know, thanks for your concern. And you know, ever since, <coughs> excuse me, ever since that event and a whole bunch of other events, that's why Facebook had that function so that, that the, you know, the loved ones, when they're looking and waiting for an answer from them, when they're not getting any news, they hope that they hear something responsive to give them some sort of relief. And that's what the psalmist is doing. He's, he's crying out to the Lord. He's hoping that the Lord will send him some sort of message to let him know that, that help is on his way or that things is coming, uh, that, that you just need to wait a little bit longer. But he doesn't get that. He, he, he says he's crying out to the Lord every day. He spread out his hands to you. And this word spread out is like a child. You look at my kids and you go to them. And if they need something, they fall or trip or something, get hurt. They're, there's tears in their eyes and they go like this. This is what they're doing. They're trying to, hey, pick me up. I need you to help me. Help me. Give me comfort. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's crying out to the Lord the way a child would cry out to their father or mother. He's, he's acting this way. And I would imagine him on his knees praying and begging God for help. But yet he's still silent. So this, notice in this next few verses, he gives... He has all these rhetorical questions, question after question. Will you perform wonders for the dead? Will the departed spirits rise and praise you? 
Selah? Will your loving kindness be declared in grave? Uh, your faithfulness in Abaddon? Will your wonders be made known in darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? All of these rhetorical questions are just to wonder, God, why, where are you? Where are you, God? Why aren't you answering me? And he wonders. He understands that this is, you know, he knows that, he, that the Lord is behind all this, and he wants to understand how to get out of this. So he asks these questions. Will, will the dead be able to hear you? He wonders if he dies, can he go and proclaim God's goodness or, or evangelize or tell other people or give comfort to those about the Lord when he's, if he's dead? How can he do that? How can he help those praise the Lord if he is no longer alive? He sees what he really wants. It really gives, this shows you the motivation of the psalmist that he wants to live not because of his own gain or comfort, though he, that is there. What he really wants is that he wants God to be made known. And he, he fears that if he goes, if he dies, then people will doubt God's goodness and God's character or that they'll challenge the Lord. And he doesn't want that for the Lord. He wants God to be made known. So he, he's pleading and begging the Lord to help him so that people can trust in the Lord the way that he does. Verse 11, will your loving kindness be declared in the grave? He's saying that if he dies, he can't go and tell people about God's faithfulness. And your faithfulness in Abaddon is basically a place of destruction. If he dies, he won't be able to declare God's faithfulness to those that have been living. See, my child is like spreading out his hand right now. Pick me up, pick me up. <laughs> Verse 12, will your wonders be made known in darkness and your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Again, the wonders, God's wonders won't be made known if he is gone. Notice in the darkness, the dead will not be able to hell of God's goodness and that's what he fears he says that the righteousness or the God's righteousness in the land forgetfulness the, uh, the, like death is the eraser of all um, of all the voices he, he doesn't want to be silenced because he wants people to hear of God's goodness and he can't do that if he is dead people that die their words are, will be quickly forgotten I know that's like weird because we have like Know, Twitter and all these social media things and things are recorded all over the place. But remember back then, there was no way that people could record these things except through like written word. But all the things that they said, unless someone carries on and passes on and forces it into everyone else, it's gonna, their, their voice is going to go away. And he understands that the psalmist, like, aside, from, aside from writing in the word of scripture, there's no way that he can talk about God's faithfulness. And the reason the psalmist wanted to live is because he wants to praise God and he wants others to praise the Lord as well. If God, uh, if God um, wants these attributes to be made known, God must save this psalmist here. God must deliver him from this impending doom if he wants to go and declare God's power to the world. That's his idea here in these, these rhetorical questions. Verse 13, but I, O Yahweh, O Lord, have cried out to you for help and in the morning my prayer comes before you he still sees no relief there's still this ongoing pain that he feels and in the morning my prayer goes to you back then in the jewish mind they would they would pray at night and they would expect that god will answer in the morning um, that's just a normal thought in the culture and we see this throughout the psalms actually in psalm chapter 5 
verse 3. It reads, For, uh, In the morning, O Yahweh, you will hear my voice. In the morning, I will order my prayer to you and eagerly watch. Psalm chapter 90, verse 14. It reads, O oh, satisfy us in the morning with your loving kindness that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. And one last verse, Psalm 143. Verse 8. Let me hear your loving kindness in the morning, for I trust in you. Teach me the way in which I should walk, for to you I lift up my soul. He knows that his prayers are going to be heard by God. He knows it. He, he, he trusts in the Lord no matter how silent he's been this, throughout this entire time. He still knows that God will respond. He just doesn't know when, but he still cries out to the Lord. Verse 14, Oh Lord, why do you reject my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? The psalmist seems, it almost seems like in this verse that he's almost like frustrated with God. He's like, has this internal dialogue with himself. He ain't asked the Lord, why do you reject my soul? He's asking why, but he didn't stop trusting in the Lord. He asked the Lord, why do you hide my face from me? He is honest about his pain through God. This means, this means hiding your face. It means that he, this idea of just showing some favor. Lord, if you just look upon me with some favor, you turn your face to me, then I will have some sort of relief. It would seem that even a small glance from the Lord will give him some alleviation from his pain. And it will even give him some strength before he dies. Verse 15, I was afflicted and about to die from my youth on. I suffered your cares. I am overcome. This brought, this, 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 this trial, this affliction is not a new experience. He said it's from his youth. That means that he has got it before. He's, this is an ongoing thing. He doesn't see an end in sight. And this is just encouragement for some of us. I understand that you know, this is a young college and career group. You're not thinking really in terms of pain that lasts more than like two or three weeks. Some of you have gone through some afflictions that lasted maybe a few years or so. But can you imagine having some sort of medical thing that, that goes on for decades at a time? You know, it's like we look back in the day, it's the same as today, and the pain doesn't go away, and you look to tomorrow, and you're anticipating that's going to happen. And no matter where you look, past and present, it's a very hard life. And this psalmist here is saying that from my youth, I've experienced this type of suffering. He doesn't understand what's happening to him. It seems to, he, he seems to be at death's door since youth. He's a child. Since he was very young, he's known nothing of comfort in his life feels God's terror. He's overcome by it. This phrase, overcome, is actually the only use here in this entire psalm. It means that he just feels completely helpless. He's overwhelmed. There's nothing that he can... He, there's no escape for him. His emotional, mental, even psychological condition is he just feels completely wasted. Even though God doesn't answer him and is silent to the psalmist, Psalmist doesn't let go of God, but he continues to pray to the Lord. Verse 16, your burning anger has passed over me. Your terrors have destroyed me. Now this burning anger, he, he doesn't actually know 
why he's going through this. It's just that when he feels this, the affliction, he, it was almost like, you know, how we sometimes say, well, why God, why me? Did I do something wrong? And that's the, that's what he's, what's going on. He just feels this pain. He thinks that it's something that he did wrong and, and he doesn't know, but he feels like he's experiencing the wrath of God somehow. It's passed over him, meaning that he's just experienced the full weight of it. He describes it like being hit by water or being drowning in a sea. Verse 17, they have surrounded me <clears throat> like water all the day long. They have encompassed me all together. He just feels like there's nothing that he can do. He just feels like he is drowning. I, I don't know if you ever played this game where you sort of try to like hold your breath for as long as you can. Um, you, know, you hold your nose and then you, you know, if you compare, you're playing against somebody, you try to hold your nose and see like how long a person can go without breathing and Usually those games will eventually end when someone decides to, like, oh, they take a deep breath. But, you, but, you know, I've never drowned before, but I would imagine that, unlike the game, the game you have a choice to stop it. Drowning is this very, very difficult and painful thing. Because you can't speed up death, but you want to get out of it. It's almost like you're in this middle, you're in limbo. You want, the, you want to either die immediately or find relief immediately. He's, Thomas is not in any of that. He's right in the middle suck he wishes to die quickly or wishes to be delivered quickly and in both cases he doesn't get that answer he feels encompassed by water it's a metaphor to describe his suffering verse 18 you have removed lovers and friends far from me the lover here is not speaking romantically it's just loved ones in general sense it seems as if um it's similar to what verse 6 and verse 8 how he has no more acquaintances with friends they all left him because of Perhaps how disgusted he looks because of all the physical pain that he's going through. His friends are far from him. You know, there's some people that claim, like, oh, yeah, man, we're going to ride or die, and I'm going to be with you till the end. And in this case, no, that isn't the case. That's tested, and the loyalty is not there. He's all by himself. He is utterly alone. His only friend is darkness. That's how verse 18 ends. My acquaintances are in darkness. He sees that his only companion is death. Is this despair, is depression, is just this dreadful entity. There he feels that there is no life, there's no joy. And at the moment he feels that there's no hope, just isolating darkness. And Psalmist realizes that at the time of the greatest trial, everyone in his life is gone except for death. He's very close to death in that way. Perhaps. Some people don't know what to say, and some people don't know what to do. And perhaps some fear that this affliction that the psalmist is going through will get to them, and they, they choose to abandon him. Therefore, the psalmist feels, the only one that really gets me is death. Now, this is a very depressing psalm, right? Like, what am I supposed to do with this? This is the last psalm of our series. I'm going to end on a very depressing note. Why? What can we learn from this? What can we possibly glean from such a depressing psalm? Well, I'll just submit to you three, three or four, depends on how we get through tonight. First, and I've alluded to it throughout this entire message, that first and foremost, that all trials are from God. And if that is true, if all trials are from God, if we understand the James chapter 1 here, James chapter 1 tells us that we need to count it all joys, brethren, when we, in, when we go through and endure different trials and encounter various types of troubles and trials 
knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance and let endurance have its perfect results that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You understand that all your trials are from the Lord and it's supposed to mold you in a way. And you may not understand what is going on, but at least you know <laughs> that your trial is supposed to shape you to be more like Christ. This psalm is here. Some of the language is exactly what the, the, our Savior has experienced. He knows that even the, you know, Christ understands like, our suffering because he, you know, he suffered the greatest of all sufferings. So when we suffer, we actually kind of identify with the Lord. And that's at least the base minimum. We may not understand all the details of what we're suffering, but at minimum, these type of trials in your life, no matter how great or small, or small is designed with a purpose to sanctify you. It's designed to make you trust in him. Life is real and pain is real, but our suffering is never hopeless because it is designed for the believer to mature and to be more like Christ. Yes, even if the future glory, we understand in, in glory, everything's going to be great because there will be no more pain and no more tears. But that does not mean that in the moments that these pain are not real. It does hurt and it's difficult and it's very trying. But you have to see in perspective and having a big picture and understand that God is using these trials to shape you to be more like his son, to, to, to be dependent on you. That's what the psalmist is doing, this entire psalm. Even though he doesn't speak of an end, there is no, seemingly no definitive end, he's still trusting in the Lord. He knows that the God of, of Israel, that Yahweh is the one that's placed him there, and he knows that God will ultimately see him through. Even though at the very moment, in the time of great suffering, it hurts. So you have to remember that. It come, I mean, this last year was difficult. But it went by pretty fast. And your life is, all of our lives are but a vapor. Your trial is hard and great, but it will eventually pass. And second, our first point is that all trials are worse. Second, suffering often reveals what you worship. Suffering reveals what you worship. Remember in the part in the beginning, in the middle of the psalm, <coughs> the psalmist was asking all of these rhetorical questions. He's asking God, if I die, how will people know about your goodness? This actually reveals what he cares most about. The psalmist is suffering because he, he wants the suffering to stop so that he can tell people about God's goodness. He wants to, <laughs> he, he prays to get to life to get better so that he can praise the Lord so that other people can know the power of God. His life is centered around the Lord even though he's under great and deep suffering. He uses the suffering in hopes that to empower others that are suffering so they can praise the Lord. And in some sense, that prayer is answered because it's written here in God's word for us to know. All of us are going to go through different varying sufferings, but how we respond to suffering reveals what we worship. You know, there are a lot of people, because of suffering, choose to either deny the faith or not come to faith. Some people think like, oh, if Jesus is placing me through so much suffering, difficulty, I'm denying the faith. Or the opposite. I'm going through so much affliction, why would I still worship a God? Why did God put me in this trial? And you understand that that is a very self-centered way to think about the Lord. Because you're thinking, I'm going to deconstruct Christianity, I'm going to try to destroy Christianity based on my own experience. You try to say that all these problems in your life and outside of you, but you don't see that the problem is actually within you. The issue is your own sin 
and suffering reveals what you worship. Some people only praise the Lord, only want to be a Christian because they think that life is going to better, be better. That's why they leave the faith when there's trials. Christianity is too hard. I'm out of this. I can't deal with the suffering for being called a, a Christian. Or life is too hard, so I don't want to even deal with Christianity because if God is good, then why am I suffering? You understand that their worship is actually themselves. People that think in this way think that all, that all of creation is about them. And I wonder if this is how you think about your suffering. When you think about suffering, do you find that like, the, the true, <laughs> your true self surfaces to the top? Do you really see what you love and trust the moment you suffer? But if you truly love the Lord, then you would want him to be made known. You want him to be glorified no matter the circumstance you're in. Suffering reveals what you worship the most. So first thing that we learned is that trials or suffering is from the Lord. And the second, suffering reveals what you worship. And lastly, maybe not last, we'll see. <laughs> you can, the next one is that you can only cling to God. Then you're suffering. The only person you can cling to is the Lord. You can only cling to him even when it seems like he isn't answering. The psalmist knows and believes that God is the only way for salvation. This is how the psalm begins. Right, verse 1, O Lord, the God of my salvation. The psalmist will pray to God even if God doesn't seem like he's answering. God is all that he has. Remember, he is alone. And if you imagine if he's alone, that means he doesn't have a job. He doesn't have anything else. The only thing that he has left is the Lord. We need to continue to turn our focus on the Lord in light of great suffering. Now, we will, we, there is a possibility that we will not know every detail of why we suffer. We might know providentially by looking back, but we may not know in the moment. Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that the mystery, the mysterious things belongs to There's just some things in life that, that we will never understand, but what he's given us, the word of God, that is for us. We need to know God and from his word. And that's the thing that we're going to depend on. We need to think about the attributes of God and on who he is, the truthfulness of God's word. And that's the only thing that we cling on to. We focus on him. We focus on the promises that he has made for us. That in this life, you may not have the answers of why you suffer. But you know that there is going to be a time where suffering is going to end. It may not be in this life, though. You, need, you may not have a happy ending in this life. Sometimes your life will be filled with pain and may even seem like it's a lifelong type of suffering. The circumstances may not always be for you, but you must remember that God is for you. The circumstances is against you, but God is not against you if you belong to him. And that's what the psalmist is saying. He knows that God is his salvation. He knows that even though he's experiencing what feels like his wrath, he knows that in the end that God is doing this for his good. Trust in the character of God, even when it seems like he is silent. And that's what we need to do as well. We need to trust the Lord and his character, even when he doesn't reveal to us exactly what's going on. This requires us to dig deep, to remember, to cherish the attributes of God that's revealed in Scripture. How many attributes of God can you name? And not only that, how much of those things do you actually believe in? Because those things that you know about the Lord will be tested during those times of trials. Genuine Christians will always trust the Lord. They will go to him. 
They will always pray no matter how hard things are going to be. They will always seek <clears throat> scripture to, <coughs> excuse me, to know the Lord because they know that God is their salvation. That's how the Psalms begins. And that salvation, this knowledge of God saving him is, is what keeps him through his life and trials. And it will, and that's what he will experience at the end of his life. Throughout the agony of this prolonged affliction, the faithful, they will never give up on the Lord. They'll never give up hope on the Lord. God will answer their prayers and give them reason to praise only at the very end. At the end, we'll understand why everything is. Right now, we look at a, a mirror that's like dimly, but until we reach glory, that, 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 that perfect state where sin is removed, then we will finally understand, wow, God, you are a good God, and you are, that you've delivered me through all of this trial. I began by talking about that music thing, this dissonance, by like the song is starting a certain key, and it doesn't, until you hit that last note, you won't feel at peace. But we know that that last note will come, and everything will resolve ultimately in glory. But for now, we have to, in those moments of silence, we have to live with this uncomfortable sense of loneliness at times, but we know that we need to cling on Christ. So as we know that when that last note hits, the first note of eternity begins. It's that last note, when it hits, the first note of eternity begins. And we long for a day to hear the Lord tell us, well done, my faithful servant. That's the first thing that we'll hear when we endure all this trial, and yet we still hold on to our Savior because our God is our salvation. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we know we know nothing of your wisdom outside that's revealed from your word. Your ways are above and beyond our ways, and we may not fully understand what's going on, but we trust in you because of what you've revealed to us in your word. Lord, help us now as we go through different afflictions and trials, and I trust some of us are suffering through different things, whether it's secret or public, whatever it may be, Lord. <laughs> may we always remember your goodness. So we, we always cry out to you, even if our body seems to be wasting away. We know at the end that we will be delivered, because, Lord, you are the God of our salvation. Help us cherish these, cherish these truths now as we go about our weekend. Thank you in your son's precious name. Amen. Okay, a few announcements before you go. Now that we're done with the Psalms, the Psalms is our, our last Psalm. I decided to end in a very depressing note, and I trust that it's actually not that depressing because we see the goodness of God in it. So what next? Well, um, in the month of June, I'm going to go through this little mini-series for us. It's just kind of like thoughts that I've, that I've had last year, uh, things that I think... Um, you know, my job as a pastor to shepherd, to equip you guys. And my hope is to just touch on certain subjects um, that I think <coughs> that I think that can help us be a Christian in this weird and strange world. Um, so the first one that I'm going to teach on in the second week of June when we're back from our, um, you know, our little casual nights, uh, I want to talk on the Christian's identity. Um, in our day and age with intersectionality and everything like that, how are Christians supposed to think through this? Um, like, are we supposed to help? Are we supposed to think about how 
uh, the way the world thinks about who we are and how we identify ourselves. The world thinks in these very superficial ways, and, um, and I think the Bible has an answer to that. And that's designed for you to think about who you are in this fallen world. More importantly, who you are in Christ in the fallen world. Uh, then the week after, um, I, I want to go through a passage in James chapter 4 about not judging one another. The reason why that is is because that weekend is going to be the week where we return and you know where you know we get our freedoms back or whatever. Um, and, you know, there's, so there's going to be you know less regulations and less restrictions for us to come together. And as we return in you know, whatever capacity it might look like, there is a temptation that I fear that we might judge those that are okay. You're vaccinated. You're not vaccinated. Or, you hold to this view or not the view, those views. And I think there's a biblical unity that we still have and instill in our own hearts and minds. And we're going to look at that in James chapter 4. And the week after, I'm going to talk on John 14 about how to prepare for death. I'm not like threatening or anything, but it's just this idea of how in this fallen world, with all this fear that's going on, how can we still trust the Lord? How can we, uh, what, what do we look forward to? Because as a Christian, we, we know that this life is not all that we have. We have something greater coming. And I want to make us think about it because, again, once everything's returned, there's still that lingering fear. You know, the whole year and a half, you guys have been thinking about you're constantly bombarded with views that you're going to die. And if you don't do this, you're going to die. If you don't do that, you're going to die. But for us as Christians, like, yeah, even if we were to die, that's not a loss for us. And I want to uh, equip us to think in those terms. And the last one in that series actually going to be a Sunday message. Um, I'm going to teach on Daniel chapter 1. That message, I actually designed it for you guys a year ago before all this COVID thing happened. Remember, we were planning the retreats, and uh, we're, one of my workshops was on how do you navigate through living in this strange new world. Now, at the time, I didn't think that there was COVID. I didn't think of the election. I didn't think of anything that was going to happen uh, a year later. So it's a, I feel like this is now the time to talk about that. Um, so that's kind of just giving you like a whole, my whole month of June's preaching schedule. And I hope that you would um, attend, whether it's in person or online, um, so that you can understand what God uh, expects of us in living this very weird world and how we can conduct not just outside to outside, but also to those inside as well. And after that, in July, well, I'll, leave, uh, I'll leave those up a little bit later. But just that's the thing that you can look forward to in June. I might change it, it depends. I, I'm having conversations with different people, and sometimes I had like 12 sermons in my mind that I wanted to do, but I just narrowed down to like three. Otherwise, I'll be preaching randomly about different topics for a very long time. Um, but I just want to at least uh, tell you those four so that you can think about um, how you can prepare your hearts to come and, or to log on to learn more about this. Thanks, guys.